So JMU has crowned itself kings of the East in the Sun Belt Conference after blowing out Coastal Carolina in the regular season finale on Saturday. Noah and I were there. We saw it all go down. We saw uh, a week's worth of some uh, brewing bad blood between the two programs and uh, JMU take it out on the Chanticleers uh, at Bridgeport Stadium. No, I guess just start with your first initial takeaway after watching that game on the game itself, and then we're going to get into the big picture of like what it all means for JMU at this point. Yeah, the game was definitely surprising. Obviously, JMU ended up closing, I think, at 14.5 you know, as a favorite, and I so you obviously expected them to win. But I did not expect them to score 44 and answer it and, and just dominate the way they did. Yeah, I mean, I think even like the 14-point spread raised some eyebrows. And, you know, people think, well, okay, Garrison McCall's not playing. That makes a big difference in that. But, um, you know, Coastal coming in 9-1, and one, they've won some games without McCall. Um, so I, th- I was thinking, you know, not that Jamie was a favorite was a surprise, but two touchdowns was a little bit of a surprise. And then to see JMU just completely dominate the game. Like you said, um, you take away a fourth down call that fooled JMU. I mean, this could have been a shutout. Like, it's, uh, you know, it was that dominant of a performance by, by the Dukes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just kind of a broken play. The guy got wide open and touchdown. But they, they rebounded. The defense gave up 75 yards on that drive. They gave up 108 in the first quarter. So that drive was in that. And then outside of that, it was 80 yards the rest of the way, which was an average of 1.8 yards per play for Coastal from the second quarter on. So I think uh, the defense figured it out, and obviously it's one of the best in the country. Um, as I pointed out over the weekend, you know, they finished number one in a lot of categories. And, and it's a thing that's kind of interesting about that team where we didn't know what this defense would honestly look like at the beginning of the year, and they, they, they showed against Coastal what they can do. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, defensively, obviously, they end up statistically one of the best teams in the country on the defensive side of the ball. Um, really showed up even even in their losses, with the exception of the you know Georgia Southern game, which was just kind of the strangest game of the season for JMU. The defense showed up week in week out. Um, you know, probably maybe one of the most interesting aspects of the JMU Coastal game is just how. Um, you know, it seems like these teams just don't like each other at this point, given the fact that they really hadn't faced each other much as programs, and nobody really in the programs right now had much of a history. They they really did not seem to like each other. Yeah, I mean, I think Jimmy Chadwell earlier in the the couple weeks ago was talking about, you know, how he kind of trying to downplay what JMU was doing, saying, you know, well, if we had all these scholarships, this or that, and, you know, he kind of didn't know what he was talking about, I guess, and Signetti was there to point him out. Uh, but yeah, I think you know it might be one of those things where Coastal feels threatened that another um, another top dog is in the conference, and it's what it is right now. JMU finished ahead of them in the conference, and I think that might be part of the issue of saying you know they thought they could just run through the East every year, and now it's, it's going to get a little harder. Yeah, and I think you know possibly multiple coaches, but Chadwell in particular got a little tired of week in week out getting questions about JMU and their transition and how they were doing so well to start out with and. You know, Chadwell seemed to take it a little more personally, just as far as like them not starting out as well in their initial in their initial transition. Um, obviously, he's built that program into a conference power that's competing for a championship every year. But yeah, he did seem to maybe take a little more offense to those questions coming up repeatedly, and was quick to point out that JMU had a little bit different situation, which Kurt Signetti 
would quickly come back and say, like, you know what, we didn't have 85 scholarships. We had 77 because, you know, guys left it before the season started, things like that. Um, so a little bit of truth to both sides of their <laughs> arguments, I feel like. Um, but both sides taking it a little bit personally. And then, you know, Signetti taking it personally to the point where he uh, kind of poured it on them Saturday when he had the opportunity. Yeah, and I think, you know, after the game when he said he wished they scored 65, you know, I think we're sitting in the press box and it was 20 to 7 at the half, and we looked at each other and we're like, I think he's going to run the score up. Yeah. And he, I, they definitely wanted to. Yeah, and they did probably take their foot off the gas a little bit in the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, they weren't airing it out or anything. Um, but was a, a complete beatdown by JMU, who then took every opportunity to celebrate their accomplishments finishing first in the Sunbelt Conference or in the Sunbelt East with um, you know, players and coaches not being shy about declaring themselves champions. The, you know, official line, you know, printed on the uh, printed on the banners, printed on the scoreboard Kings of the East, you know, finished first, you know, they, they intentionally avoided that word champion because they're playing nice with the conference office after uh dealing with all the turmoil in the CAA last year. But it was it was definitely a fun <laughs> a fun thing to witness just seeing the aftermath with uh, the way it was celebrated. You know, I think they should hang the banner. May as well. But you know, I think, you know, it was right. They they're celebrated. You thought they won the conference title. I mean, the cigars were on the field in the locker room. They were having a fun time. Yeah. And you know, when you are set up to know that this is the end of your season, this was the best you could do, I, you know, I guess kind of more power to you to celebrate it as, you know, the biggest accomplishment you could possibly make, you know, they probably would take offense to like saying that game was their Super Bowl, but in a way, like, you know, knowing that it comes down to that, it sort of was. I mean, Signetti said it was their bowl game after the game. So, I mean, they looked at it that way and they knew that a bowl wasn't going to happen and they decided to go out with a bang on national television. And if you, I was watching it back, I watched the first half last night again and you know, ESPN wasn't shy to say that Jamie should be bowling. Yeah, and it's um, it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit of a throwback to older college football days when more seasons did end this way with just like you a know, win. Yeah, just a win. You know, there weren't as many bowl games. Um, you know, for a lot of programs, if you were in not the major conferences, or you know, even today, if you're in, you know, like uh, the SWAC or you're an HBCU or something, or doesn't don't participate in playoffs. You know, you can end the season this way. But for JMU to do it moving up, it, it is a little bit of a unique situation, something they're not going to be in going forward. Possibly. So, for, yeah. More than generally, likely. Yeah, generally speaking. Like, <laughs> even if it is only one more year, I guess, of it, um, that would be a possibility. But to see them kind of, you know, take full advantage of what they did have available to them this year was interesting. You say, hang the banner. I do kind of wonder how they will acknowledge it going forward. We saw what they did on Saturday. Um, I think they probably will want to do something so that it's not forgotten in the long run that they finished first. And, you know, if they can put together any kind of streak as far as like, you know, winning the division, winning the conference, I'm guessing they want to have some way to kind of acknowledge that in the long term more permanently at the stadium. Well, we know they're getting rings. We can start with that. He already said they were going to get rings either way. So we already know that's happening. And the shirts are being printed already. So, you know, yeah. 
I don't think the season will be forgotten. You know, JMU did something nobody else has done in college football, and and the Dukes reminded you that all year, and I think they're going to still say it going into next season. And um, you know, it's quite the first year in the FBS. They had their ups and downs, but they finished with three game winning streak, taking off the top dogs at the end of the year. And you know, I think well, I think a lot of those people in Plucker right now are going to be rooting for Troy yeah, on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, um, although. If you are JMU and um, Coastal goes out there and beats Troy and wins the conference championship, then you have an even stronger claim on being, you know, the top dog in in the Sun Belt overall. Um, so I think they can probably find some joy in what happens um, in Troy on Saturday. Either way, I do. I will kind of also just point out that this athletic department in recent years has been very specific with their wording on signage when it comes to uh hanging up banners and stuff <laughs> in their in their sports facilities they put up you know uh they put up banners that said just conference champions when uh they were kind of exploring the possibility of leaving caa then put up anything that said caa um so i wouldn't be so, totally surprised if they could put up you know something uh there on the side of plecker that you know kings you know, the east just kings east or or you know just start like saying you know first in division like <laughs> and started like year by year and you know maybe it'll say 2022 2023 first in so division on. with in a, in a transition year at home yeah. against Coast. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know how, how they word it but I, i'm guessing there'll be something to remind people as they come to bridgeport stadium in the years to come that uh this is how the season ended for jmu in their first fbs season yeah i think it will be but you know i think it's a memorable year i mean they did everything they needed to do and you know I think exceeded a lot of expectations. Definitely exceeded mine. I only had them as a three to four win team, and they come out and win eight games. So yeah, I mean, I thought like five to six, and if things break well, possibly a seventh victory. Um, but yeah, to see them win eight, uh, blow a lot of teams out, and you know, this might sound like uh, excuse making or something, but if Todd Santeo is healthy the entire year, we're probably talking about even more than eight victories. Oh. I, I give them the Marshall game, but yeah. I think that's the only one that that would affect. I mean, honestly, they're more than likely if special teams doesn't have two block kicks in back to back weeks, they're mm-hmm. both wins. Yeah. So I think I think that Todd Santel would make an impact in the Marshall game, but I think, you know, he was playing slightly hurt, I think, against Georgia Southern, but still threw for a career high and a record setting day and so I think that was that, but you know they're a blocked punt away from winning that, and a blocked extra point from winning Marshall. So yeah, um, I think maybe one thing you know as we kind of turn the page to what comes next for JMU, um, that kind of midseason lull that they've been able to escape as an FCS powerhouse um, didn't really matter that much if they did play that well in October. Um, <clears throat> they saw it come back to bite them a little bit this year. And then next year, when there is even more on the line with the possibilities of winning championships and going to bowl games and potentially going to big-time bowl games if they can build off of this, I think that's one thing we're going to have to see them focus on a little bit more is that consistency from week to week and avoiding avoiding that kind of letdown in the middle of the season that they've really, really kind of been a trend for JMU for a while. Yeah, I mean, they were con- pretty consistent this year, to be yeah. honest. Because even though they lost against Georgia Southern, they still 
scored 38 points. I mean, it was just a shootout at the end of the game. It turned into who's gonna <laughs> who's gonna have the ball last, basically. And I, I don't think that really was a like a, a letdown game per se. Yeah, they were ranked, um, they were favored, but I don't know if that was a letdown. And the Marshall was, you know, they weren't just missing Todd Centeno against Marshall. They, yeah. they had injuries in the offensive line and things like that. So I don't know. I think the only game that you can say was legitimately their worst game of the year was probably Louisville, and that was just because they were trying to keep bodies healthy and trying to get out of there with as few of injuries as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about things that surprised us this year, is Todd Santeo's performance on the list of things that you would consider a surprise this year? I'd say his improvement for sure. I mean, he's definitely improved a lot since when he was in Colorado State. He's probably player of the year this year. And, you know, I think we expect him to play well. I don't think I expected him to basically be the top player in the league. And I think that that was something that was surprising. Then again, he's a six-year guy. He's been in college football. He knows how it works, and it, he showed that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I expect him to be decent for JMU because, you know, they tend to get the best out of their quarterbacks. But I didn't necessarily expect to see such a drastic – turnaround from what he'd done previously also you know not being entirely familiar with what sort of went wrong for him at Colorado State we found out more and more about that as the season went on and you know he and Kurt Signetti talk about it um but yeah I didn't expect him to be like you said basically the best player in the Sun Belt um which consistently yeah (laughs) and yeah consistently um yeah really just kind of dominated Jimmy was incredibly tough to beat when he was 100% healthy and out there and, you know, just putting up tons of numbers. I need to go back and look it up, but he's been, he's been near the top of the country in touchdowns produced the entire season, Yeah, he's, and, which I'm sure he was entering 13th, I think, yeah, in the which country. I'm sure didn't change in any negative way when he gets five in his final game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you want your quarterback to get you in the end zone, and nobody, hardly anybody in the country did a better job of that than Todd Santeo this year, um, while also not turning the ball over very often. Yeah, I think he was second in pass efficiency, only behind C.J. Stratt, Ohio State, so I think that says something too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see You know how the uh, postseason awards end up turning out, but um, seems to be a lot of a lot of momentum for him to get uh, at least one of the Player of the Year awards in the Sun Belt, which... That's something I was not expecting, really, from anybody on JMU's roster, but uh, maybe Santeo in particular. Um, you know, I thought if he was one of the five best quarterbacks in the conference, like Jamie would probably be in pretty good shape. And to him, for him to turn out to have a better year than Chase Bryce, a better year than um, you know, he's better than Chris McCall. Yeah. We can just put it out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a better year than like any other quarterback in the in the conference. Uh, that was not something I was expecting, and. That kind of leads into what's next for JMU. You know, he threw it out there. Todd threw it out there during post-game press conference. You know, somebody from the crib, another another Florida guy, another guy in, you know, a very similar situation coming into JMU. Practically next. Yeah, you know, played for a couple different schools, had up and down moments, looked good at times. Uh, other things just didn't really work out for him. And Jordan McLeod committed to JMU coming in after time at South Florida and Arizona. Should we expect the same out of him as 
they got from Tots and Teo, or is that asking too much for anybody to come in and play that well? No, I think it's a real expectation because you look at the lineage of quarterback success and improvement once they get to JMU, and I think that Tots and Teo is a prime example. And I think that when you look at Jordan McLeod, he's a very similar player to Tots and Teo, dual threat quarterback, loves to play outside the pocket, can extend plays with his legs, can run as well. So I think the offense doesn't have to change too much to fit his style. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why they went and got him. And I think that he's primed opportunity to be the next quarterback to see his jump. I mean, Ben DiNucci did it. Cole Johnson did it. Tatsun did it. Yeah, you go back. um, For whatever reasons, I think injuries had a lot to do with it. Um, Just, you know, he didn't get an opportunity at Arizona. He played in three games. uh, Had... A good game against Oregon while he was there, but ended up, I think, with two touchdowns, five interceptions. It not, was number not, three Oregon at the time. So yeah, <laughs> not, not, but, you know, overall, like Arizona, not a lot to show for his time at Arizona. But you go back to when he was at South Florida, playing for a not very good South Florida team, but as a young, true freshman, Starting sophomore here. quarterback, uh, plays in 20 games, throws for close to 3,000 yards in that time. 21 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. So he's already working with, like, a fairly good base level as what he can do in the group of five conferences in a comparable conference. Um, yeah, I think JMU fans have every right to feel pretty optimistic about what he can do. Coming to JMU with two years of eligibility also is a, a huge factor in this. Yeah, I think that's going to be huge and you know coming to a place where he's seen other quarterbacks have success i think two years really plays into that now not only does you know if Thompson Taylor's here for two years i'd be really scared to see for the rest of the summer of what would happen next year yeah and i think jade mcleod's or jordan mcleod's got that opportunity to do that next year and if you really kind of look at the whole roster everything's coming back um they have some spots to fill which I'm sure they're going to work on doing in the transfer portal. But if you look at what JMU has coming back. He's got an offensive line that is good this year, yeah. and it's going to be even better next year. If you get a similar type of quarterback performance, JMU probably goes into the season as the Sun Belt favorite next year, I would think. If not, number two. But they'll definitely get first-place votes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, kind, kind of, you know, breaking that down, too, we, we started to hint at it where else they need to look in the transfer portal. Um, They've got a good high school recruiting class coming in, but there are some areas that they'll probably want to get experienced guys in here to replace. I mean, you look at wide receiver, they've already got, you know, Phoenix Sproles committed um, from North Dakota state, but you're losing your three of your top four wideouts Mm -hmm. that were extremely productive guys, all caught touchdown passes here recently. Um, Losing Chris Thornton, one, is going to be, you know, almost impossible to replace. Uh, you know, although Phoenix Sproles kind of has similar characteristics. I'm not going to say he's, like, as good as Chris Thornton or anything, but... He's got similar playmaking ability. Yeah, yeah, similar size, similar playmaking ability. But then, you know, Terrence Green and Devin Ravenel also were, were huge, huge, huge parts of the offense, um, especially at times. Uh, Devin Ravenel's speed is kind of hard to replace. So do you think that's one position where they're going to continue to look for more guys uh, in transfer portal? Yeah, they'll, they'll, I think they get at least two more wide receivers out of the portal. Um, definitely. I mean, they've got a few in the recruiting class, but I don't know how many of them are going to be, like, can play from day one. 
uh, on a consistent basis. So I think you know they'll at least get one or two from there. And then you look defensively, the biggest hole they're gonna have to fill is cornerback, and I think they're gonna grab at least one or two more experienced corners because they don't. You don't really want your most experienced cornerback being a sophomore in Chauncey Logan. That's true too. Yeah, and you know they thought they kind of had found some guys last year who ended up not really working out. Um, I think that's another, like you said, that's another place they're going to look. I also think on the defensive line is probably an area where they're going to look to plug in a guy or two, possibly. It depends losing. if Uku comes back. He's got a year left, technically. Yeah. He's got a COVID year. So, if he comes back, they only need to really get one defensive lineman. If he doesn't come back, then I think they get another one. Yeah, that definitely is a factor. I'm kind of, I was kind of like reading between the lines in his uh it Post seems game, like, like he wants to move on, but it also seems like the coaching staff is going to try to keep him. So yeah. we'll see how that goes. I mean, they're having one-on-one meetings this week. I imagine we'll hear either way sooner than later. Yeah, I mean, it may depend on, you know, if he can kind of, like, get feelers out there, like what his pro prospects might be at this point. Um, obviously, very good. Um, they do lose Jamari Edwards is yeah. one guy on the defensive line. They, you know, almost certainly – need to replace although they, they have quite a bit of depth on the defensive line but he he was so good at times this year um i, I wouldn't be surprised if they like try to find one yeah. grad transfer to kind of plug in for him for one year even if they do keep isaac and if they lose both of those guys then i think they definitely kind of try to look uh at the defensive line but you also get a healthy mikhail kamara which will help i mean, I mean when he's healthy he i think plays the same caliber as my edwards i think he's that good yeah very true, but I mean, what they saw this year is they need to develop some more depth in certain spots. I think that's one. Although they were young, I mean, James across Carpenter the defensive line, what, yeah, they've software. got a lot of really good players on the defensive line coming back, which is quite encouraging for uh, for JMU if you're looking to next year. Yeah. Um, any other spots that you know just jump out to you as like, okay, this has to be addressed? Um, um I think they can safety. They may add one. Just because Francis Meehan may may not come back. He's got a year left, but he might be done. Um, you're, I think, though, there's a possibility they get a running back. But if they think Jarvis Green is ready to rock and roll, I don't think they get a running back. Yeah. If, he, if Jarvis Green is ready to rock and roll year one, can play, be that third back, basically what they would do is move Kalon to the top back, have Latrell where he is, and then just plug and play Jarvis and Wayne Knight together at that third spot I think you're okay if they don't think that Jarvis Green's ready to go I think they get someone but the, the numbers he put up in in South Carolina which is not a bad football state I think he's I think he's ready to play yeah he did put up incredible numbers as you know I saw I think it was his dad on Twitter pointing out too he he essentially did that in half half the season because he was they, he were, they were beating teams so half. bad they were he was sitting out the I mean half of he scored games. seven touchdowns in the first half of a game. Yeah. And that's all offensive. None of them were on special teams, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they were all rushing or, rece- or receiving. Yeah, and I think it was, I think he was over 2,000 yards and basically playing uh, half the season. Yeah, um, so, so pretty incredible. Um, but that will be one thing to watch, I guess, is they have, was it 15 high school commits at this point? 15 with two um, portal currently, but I yeah. think the number will grow between now and signing day. Yeah, but that, I guess one thing to watch is – between now and signing day, December 21st, is getting all those guys signed on the dotted line because, you know, they got in early on some people. Um, 
You know, Jarvis Green's a guy. Jarvis Green's like, the guy that will can... he will he maybe get a late offer from uh, you know a Power Five program? You know, you want to get these guys signed on the dotted line on December twenty first and in here, and you know maybe you get some of them for spring ball. Um, obviously, who's here for spring ball is a huge thing to be watching out for in the next few weeks as well. You know, yeah. Jordan McLeod, I would think, is you know a Sproles lot to will be here, here spring yeah. already. Yeah, which is huge. I mean, would Todd Santeo have had the year he had no. if he hadn't been here for spring? No, no shot. Yeah. I mean, the amount of, like, he basically had to come in and do two things in spring. He came in, number one, and learned the offense and his players. But number two, he he became a leader, I think, by summer by the time fall camp rolled around, and it was because he earned it through the spring, and I think that was big, and I think that really the players fed off his leadership this season, and I think that's one of the reasons why they had such a good year is not only his play on the field, but his locker room presence and things like that really helped this team stay together as one, even though they're trailing by 20 twice, and he said both times to walk in the locker room, they all talk to each other, they're cool, level-headed, and they're good to go, and he said it starts with the camaraderie in the locker room, and I think that was pretty big from a guy like him. Yeah, he developed chemistry with his wide receivers, too, like, Almost immediately, and I think yeah, they said the that, first week he was here, he's already throwing. Yeah, that was that was huge for um, for them to be able to do that during the spring. They're going to want to see similar thing from McLeod, I'm sure. But you're also looking at a situation where, <clears throat> when you look at the transfer portal these days, I think one thing that um, Signetti has sort of tried to avoid is that situation where you're replacing entire position groups. Yep. via the portal at a time. It's hard to develop chemistry. It's hard, you know, you can get five really talented, really good, really big offensive linemen through the portal at once. But then it's tough when they haven't played any snaps together. And we might see something similar to that with the wide receivers if, if they go real heavy into the portal. Um, Possibly. You know, you, know you, you can even go back to last year. Cole Johnson pointed this out about, you know, a Towson defense that was loaded with talent from um, from the transfer portal. But he's talking about in late late in the season, they're getting ready to play, tran- play Towson. And he's talking about, you know, they have to keep things really simple on that side of the ball because those guys have not played together. And we can take advantage of that. Yeah. And I think that's something that, um, you know, Signetti definitely recognizes and has tried to kind of avoid. Um, maybe not a huge deal – when you're talking about wide receivers, but it will be big if you can get your quarterback and most of what's going to be his top targets on campus in the spring to get start kind of counteracting that a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the plan for them. I mean, they did that last year. They had, you know, Terrence Green on campus in the in the spring and yeah. and they 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 had him on on campus. Most of the guys most of the transfers they had on campus in the spring. So they only added a couple, I think over the summer. So I think they'll be fine overall. Yeah, and you saw, you know, even though Toddy and Terrence Green come in, they're both newcomers. They've never played together. They've never been in the system before. They had pretty decent chemistry, like, immediately from game one. Yeah, they figured it out. I mean, maybe there's a few drops here and there, but, I yeah. mean, they were on the same page. They re- He ran them out. The ball was there. So, I mean, that part is good to see, and I think that they can replicate that next year with uh, Jordan McLeod. Yeah. So that's what we know about JMU football as we kind of look forward to the 2023 season, spring football will be here probably before we know it. Um, it's kind of putting a wrap on football. Others, plenty of other stuff going on, JMU sports right now. We'll, we'll dive deep into basketball next week, but 
before we go, Noah was with the volleyball team at O'Neill's last night, um, watching them celebrate getting back into the NCAA tournament for the first time in a few years after, you know, a really, really good debut Sunbelt season. Just kind of give me your thoughts on them getting ready for the NCAA tournament run. You know, they'll start out against BYU in Pittsburgh. What can we expect from the Volleyball Dukes? Yeah, they're excited. Obviously, you know, they ran through conference play, only dropped one match the entire time. And, you know, now they're in the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2017. So it's all of the girls' first times playing in the tournament. But I think they're excited. There's not a lot of pressure on them to really win because they haven't gotten past the first round ever. This will be their seventh try at it. I think if they get through the first round to win in itself, they'll probably see Pitt in the second round if that happens. But short bus ride up to Pittsburgh is a lot better than what uh, BYU is going to do flying from Utah into Pittsburgh as well. So maybe the advantage. They're not going to have to have the time change, things like that, play in their factor. But Friday afternoon, they will uh, take the court and try to knock off the Cougars who um, – are just behind them in the RPI. They're 29th, but they are the seeded team, and JMU's not, so it's kind of interesting there. They didn't really beat anyone. They played a lot of ranked teams, didn't beat them. They couldn't beat San Diego, who was the class in that conference, um, in the West Coast Conference, but they also played Ohio State, so they got swept by the Buckeyes. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I think it's two very evenly matched teams. Though. Yeah, and, you know, we talked kind of throughout the week of where JMU might end up. I think we kind of thought they might end up going to Pittsburgh is – Essentially, you know, they only see it at one through eight uh, in each region. But Jamie playing the seventh seed essentially makes them the number 10 seed in that region. Is that kind of similar to what you thought you might see? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we weren't expecting them to be a high seed in the, in the tournament. And I think, you know, that's probably what we got. But they, they didn't end up with a team who's really that dominant. I mean, they're mm-hmm. both very evenly matched teams. So I think that may play in the Jamie's favor. Yeah, similar resumes because you talk about um, – you know, BYU not really beating uh, a lot of ranked teams. JMU didn't either. They they had some solid wins throughout the Sun Belt. You know, yeah. getting, you know, two or three against Texas State is pretty impressive. They beat High Point in the regular season, another NCAA tournament team. But, um, you know, when they played the likes of Florida State, Yale, Yale. was kind of like, you know, probably the worst week of the season JMU had, and they seemed to really build off of that coming in. So – do you think they can win a match in this tournament and move on, kind of take that next step for this program? I think it's winnable. Yeah, I think they, they have a shot to beat BYU for sure. Yeah. And if they do that, do you give them any shot against presumably number two Pittsburgh? From what we've seen against that kind of caliber team, probably not. But, you know, maybe if they get rolling, yeah. maybe. I mean, you never know. It's the NCAA tournament. Every sport is like that, you know. When you get to the postseason, crazy things happen. And it could happen. You'd be on their home court, though, so it'd be kind of hard yeah. as well. Yeah, should be interesting, should be fun. It's a fun time of year around Harrisonburg as we you know, wrap up football, still have a f- another fall sport playing, and we get into basketball season really heating up here starting in the next few weeks. So with that, we'll get into basketball a lot next week, but for today, that's going to do it for me and for Noah Fleischman. I'm Shane Metlin. You've been listening to the Purple and Bold podcast from the Daily News Record, and thanks for tuning in.